Coming up on Art Palace. It's actually harder to find a straight male designer than it is to find the gay male designers. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is Adam McFarlane, curatorial assistant for fashion arts and textiles. For you personally, did it... Do you think like knowing that a lot of these people were gay, did that influence your like interest in even becoming involved in fashion? See, I was a very naive kid, so I don't think that really? played much of a, a role for me because I, I just always didn't, I didn't think about it. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't something that was interest to me. What was funny is I started, so I do have an undergraduate degree in fashion design, and that's mm -hmm. kind of where I started. And I got into fashion design in the fifth grade, and I can I have very distinct memories of it because a friend of mine got me into sketching out fashion. I still have that notebook of my designs from fifth grade, which mm -hmm. are horribly 90s and awful. And what was... Somewhat ironic about it is we were both young kids, uh, and this is in a time period where you didn't, you know, kids in the fifth grade, there was no inkling of being gay or straight. I mean, right. at least from an outward perspective. I mean, I guess I can look back and say, well, I can see uh, see that I probably was gay then too. The but writing was on the, the wall. The writing was on the wall. <laughs> uh, and I was doing fashion design, so perhaps it really was. But what was funny is years later, we had, my friend and I had drifted apart, but we actually both ended up coming out as gay yeah. years later. So perhaps it is something that's like, genetically yeah. involved. What is that? Like, that's what I find so funny. I mean, it, it's like I was I was talking to you early about this and just sort of going like, well, why why does fashion? Why is it sort of dominated by gay men? Like in a way, like it's this weird field that even I feel like there's a certain sort of expectation for the arts to be like mm, pretty gay already. Like, um, but if, if I think about say sort of the reason, like, and I don't know if this is true, there's like a lot of just sort of like speculation here, but like, if I think about why there's so many gay actors, I would feel like, well, it, it probably doesn't hurt that a lot of these people have been training to pretend to be something else for a long time. Right. right. Like you get very good at, pretending and I kind of wonder if like oh well that that makes sense that you maybe sort of become like an actor in this way perhaps yeah. I don't know like but I don't know exactly what the link is with fashion so in thinking about it and for anyone listening I you'll have to forgive me I don't know the name of the study but there was a study years ago that did brain scans and show essentially showed that gay male brains are more similar to straight female brains mm -hmm. and gay female brains are more similar to straight male brains. And so there's a, there is an actual physical or physiological 
connection between mm. gay men and straight women. Which is like obvious, like if you just look at friendships, right. like yeah. it's like and not uncommon for, you know, obviously like gay men have lots of straight female friends usually. Right. And I, and so it, it kind of stands to reason. Then you have to ask the question, why do straight women love fashion? What, what is yeah. it that draws us to it? And, and for me, I think I have an aesthetic mind. So I, I, want to create uh, visually beautiful things. And fashion was the medium that I chose. I'm not a great painter or a great illustrator, um, but I can do great things on the body. And then I think some of it too is is a way of shaping the body. And I do uh, women's wear, which I think a lot of gay men do tend to design for women. And I think it's kind of, you know, it's play for me. It's something that I get to uh, envision a woman in the way I want to see her. Yeah. And I'm just, as you're saying this all too, like the idea of like, as fashion is an extension of identity too, is kind of coming out too. Like I'm thinking of like, I, you know, the way that we obviously use fashion to express something internal as well. Like this idea of that being another way that really, I think links too of, of also even the way, especially stereotypical gender roles of like women being allowed to be sort of more expressive of them themselves basically. And that comes across in fashion choices as well. Like men's fashion is generally pretty limited in how expressive it can be, you know, just like look at any award ceremony, red carpet event and like, the range of female fashion expression is on one level. And then the men like, Oh, you might have like a colorful pocket square. Well, and and the thing that I would be curious to see is that trend actually ebbs and flows. We, you know, we, we know our current fashion and I, and it's definitely very, very boring for men. Yeah. Uh, Particularly when you think about, uh, you know, one of the things I've done as, the both gay male friend and the fashion gay male friend is my straight male friends get married and I have to go with them to help pick out their tux because <laughs> they don't know the difference between a peach lapel and a notch lapel and a wingtip collar and a spread collar. So there are, we, our choices are a lot more mundane, yeah, uh, a lot more subtle. But when you look back to the 1960s and the Peacock Revolution, all men, gay or straight, could wear super tight pants and super bright patterns, bright colors. And while there certainly were hyper-masculine guys that would call those people out as being gay for their appearance only, overall society said that's okay for that short amount of time. When you go back into 18th century France, Men were wearing, uh, you know, leopard print velvet. And uh, there was one example I've seen, uh, I believe, at the Kyoto Costume Institute that's got little hearts all over it. And they were certainly on the more extreme side of, of fashion even at that time. But it was acceptable in certain scenarios. So you could go to the court and be wearing a pretty outlandish outfit. Mm Mm-hmm. But then if you went in that same time period, if you went to England, where it was much more subdued, and if you were a masculine man, you wore 
gray and brown and uh, drab colors, if you wore those same fringe fashions in England at the time, you would definitely be labeled as effeminate. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, that's always a part of like, I guess all fashion, though, it's fair to remember that, like, I mean, we do this every day of like what you consider appropriate for one location and like what's sort of the like what is considered appropriate wear. I mean, it's just like the idea of even wearing something too formal. You know, if I showed up wearing a tuxedo today to work, everyone would be giving me very strange looks, you know? Right. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's something we all deal with of like what we what we deem appropriate. This is like something like uh, because I, I live downtown and like have to walk my dogs outside. Like I'm much more comfortable just like walking out into like a city street wearing like basically pajamas right. <laughs> that I probably would be out of a sort of sense of necessity. But then if I like run into somebody, actually I was at the park on Saturday and I ran, ran into Ainsley and Nathaniel there. And I was like so mortified because of what I was wearing. But I'm just yeah. like, to me, it's basically an extension of my living room that this is part of my daily routine. I walk my dogs to the park. We go to the dog park. I hang out. I don't care if any of the people there see me wearing like, you know, gym shorts and this t-shirt, but suddenly my worlds collided and I felt very self-conscious of what I was wearing. Well, and that's it's an important distinction in looking at every gay man is not the same because as two gay males sitting here, I am one of those that, yeah, maybe in high school I would have done that, but like I would be mortified <laughs> to go out and it's not that I have to look like I'm trying hard, but I would, I'm still going to go out in a nice pair of jeans and a t-shirt that yeah. looks nice and, yeah. uh, and shoes and socks that coordinate and, no, that's, yeah, you're, you're much so, more aligned with my husband in this who regularly looks at what I'm about to walk out the door in and is like, and, are you seriously going to go out like that? And I'm like, yeah. yeah, I don't care. I don't mind. He's sort of mortified by like what I will choose to. And and again, like I <laughs> wouldn't put in a position suddenly I will feel like shame over like, yeah. what have I, <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> oh, we all have those moments. I have the, I have those moments where I come into work and I've paired together a pair of slacks and a dress shirt. And I look at it and I'm like, this is the worst color combination. What was I thinking? <laughs> Well, I guess for you though, the, like the pressure must feel super on, or do, oh, you, yes, feel, I mean, do you feel that like, well, that's, I think, you know, the, the struggle with growing up in the nineties for any of us mm -hmm. and, and eighties and nineties is fashion didn't fit. Yeah, that's true. I remember so many things that were just two sizes too big yeah. and I'm a small person anyway. So even a small sometimes can drown me in fashion and I've been able over the past few years to realize that I want so, like I look better in something that's tailored Yeah, and I have a sewing machine and I have, and I'm a designer, so I don't make my own clothes, but I can go to the store, buy something and tailor it in. And so for me, that pressure is knowing not only putting on something that looks good, but that fits my body. Yeah. It's part of it. So I, I love where I prefer to wear jeans and a t-shirt, but I wear a t-shirt that fits properly. That doesn't have a ton of excess fabric around it. Um, and yeah. I, and I think that's something that is how I interpret looking good is looking my best. It doesn't have to be the best clothing, but it can be, uh, what I know I look good in versus 
what makes me look sloppy. <laughs> God, I, I had never really thought about that because about the sort of like 90s fashion, like having a such a detrimental effect on probably men our age. But like, you're right, because and this is, again, something my husband regularly has like, like those pants are too big for you. Like you can't like wear that. Like, oh, saggy crotch is a thing. <laughs> yeah. And and it's really funny because like. I totally had not noticed it until I saw it through his eyes and having grown up in a different country that, and he did not have the same sense. He's always just like American. You guys wear your pants. So they're too big on like everybody. Like you can't see anybody's butt. And, and I'm like, I, first I was a little like resistant and now I'm like totally looking around. I'm like, Oh my God, it's, it's true. Like everyone's pants are too big. Like constantly I'm looking around and be like, that's right. They, we all, it's it is a it's an epidemic. <laughs> well, and it it is something that, in many ways, is uniquely American because yeah, other you know certainly styles change and you know you have the big shoulders of the eighties and those kind of things. But Americans, particularly in since the late eighties and really up until the early to mid two thousands, it you know there's there's not a comprehension of tailoring. Yeah, if, You know, I lived in England for a year and certainly just like any country, there's a wide variety of fashion sense. Yeah. But overall, if you go to a British company like Topshop or Topman there uh, or, trying to, you know, any any of these companies originating out of Europe's, they're going to be a, they're going to run smaller sizes with the anticipation of it actually fitting you. Yeah. Whereas an American company, it may say small, but really it's a European medium. Yeah. Because they anticipate that we want it baggy. And I don't know if we just haven't communicated well. (laughs) (laughs) But I know a lot, I mean, particularly a lot of straight men don't, you know, I think unless you're a muscle-bound guy, you don't want to show off your figure. If you've got a beer gut, you think wearing a tighter shirt is going to show off my beer gut. That that brings up another idea too about even that like way of presenting. And I remember uh, listening to Savage Love um, podcast at one point and somebody was sort of like critiquing um, the sort of like very revealing female Halloween costumes that are like, you know, every year it's like they're so, it's just, you know, everyone's like laughing at like the silliness of all of these things. And Dan Savage was like, He's like, hey, go easy on them. This is like straight pride, basically. This is like the one night a year that straight people get to be like, like really like straight ladies at least can dress like really revealing and nobody's going to judge them. And like you imagined uh, a man in that same skimpy costume, your read on them is that, oh, they're gay, right? Which is, a fa- I was just thinking of that as you were saying, it is the the only equivalent is the slutty, the slutty guy. Right. And he is, yeah, he's going to be. But of course, what's the, what is the, the common denominator here is both gay men and straight women are trying to attract men, right? Yes. And so if you are trying to attract women, wearing skimpy clothing doesn't necessarily do the trick. Correct. (laughs) Or, or, or maybe it does for some, some women, but probably not as many of them. Yeah. It's, it's going to be the Samantha of the sex in the city group that wants the, uh, half naked man, but right. Yeah. It's like, so there's that weird thing of like, they're also like following 
what the culture has taught them is how how we present, right? So if if a man does wear something that is is perceived as too clingy or too tight, the first thing that we go to is like, oh, that looks really gay. Yeah, well, and that, that what's interesting there is that the, I think there's been a some shift in that from the early 2000s with the coining of the term metrosexual. <laughs> right. And that was, I think, the straight man's way of breaking into that. Yeah. So that it wasn't something that puts you in the category of gay because you were wearing clingy clothes, because you were wearing, um, you know, the, one of my biggest pet peeves with American men's fashion, and gay men do this too, it's just what they've been taught, is they'll have a, a button-up shirt, mm-hmm. and they'll have the top button or two unbuttoned, mm-hmm. and you can see their undershirt underneath it. Men don't ever have your undershirt showing, <laughs> ever. And if you, it doesn't matter if it's a regular T-shirt or a purposely designed undershirt. Don't ever do that. And Why so does I, this bother you so much? Because it's not supposed to. An undershirt is not supposed to be visible. It's an <laughs> undershirt. So like, it's so rigid. That's so like such a rigid read of like what's possible with fashion. But that is, if you go to any other country that wears our style of clothing, mm-hmm. it's so unfashionable. You can, you know, and I okay. think that to me, the metrosexual was kind of one of those things where you could wear your top button or two unbuttoned on your dress shirt without a shirt underneath it. Mm. And no one looked at you like you were crazy Yeah. or that, I mean, you weren't underdressed. The, the, the function of an undershirt is to collect your sweat. Like that is, that is yeah. why you wear an undershirt. So yeah. if you're going to wear an undershirt because you sweat a lot, it's summer, you're walking outside a lot, go for it, but have your shirt buttoned up to where you can't see it. Wear a deep V neck. I know I think still to this day, straight men and some gay men think that wearing a deep V shirt is gay. It's which not. Is, it's it's functional. But I like that though. That like, and some gay men think that it's too gay, which is like this thing that that drives me crazy. But that is a real thing. Yes. Oh, I have plenty of things that I don't wear because I feel like they're too gay. Right. And I'm a gay man. Right. Yeah. Isn't that bizarre? I mean, that's how. Like, I guess that kind of stuff. I mean. I can't remember who I was talking to recently, um, but and they were kind of asking me like, "Well, do you think things are better, you know, than they were?" I was like, "Well, obviously, like, you know, it's hard. It's like, yeah, obviously, acceptance is is at has never been greater. Like, so yeah, obviously, it is 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 good, but that kind of stuff where it's like, I don't want to do this because it's perceived as too gay. It it is perceived as exactly the thing I am." It's like my husband will say that sometimes like, oh, he's like, oh, that's like, he's like, no, no, that's too gay. Like with clothes, especially like, mm-hmm. should I, you will be like shopping. You'll be like, should I get this? And I'm like, sure, go. And then he'll be like, nah, it's too gay. And I was like, well, it's probably not gayer than marrying me. Right. Like, right. that's kind of the height of gayness. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think the one thing that is different is someone can look at you too and unless if they don't know you, they can see you're both wearing wedding rings, but they don't know if you're married to each other or married oh, no. or not. Now, if you're standing next to each other, you have your wedding bands on and one or both of you is wearing very flamboyant clothing. Lavender. Lavender. Yeah. Or <laughs> super coded. bright florals. Right. And things like that. Then then you start to really push yourself out there. Yeah. And you're starting to 
to broad, potentially broadcast yourself. No, I definitely, that's true. I mean, here in, in Cincinnati, at least, like if we eat out at a restaurant, almost always the waiter will start by asking um, separate checks. Almost right. always. And I didn't pay attention to it much until I ate at a restaurant with a female friend and they would always ask one check when they came because they assumed we were a couple. The only time I've had it different is a super fancy restaurant where they assume why would two straight men right. be coming to a high-end fancy restaurant yeah, yeah. together. But yes, generally right. any standard sit-down restaurant. Yeah, and like, but it, like in a, in a city like Miami... I've had like almost always they assume we're gay. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> it's just like, well, and way I just assume any, uh, even New York or probably, you know, yeah. I hate to say it, but San Francisco, you know, as your stereotype of the gay city. <laughs> I mean, I feel like Miami and San Francisco are your hits there, but yeah, it's just funny because you can just, I can always tell. And it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, that is, it does not like bother me deeply where I'm like, Oh, how dare they? But it is just this like weird little thing that I always get like, huh? That's, that's but it's probably not based on the clothing you're wearing. It's just based on your two men at a restaurant together. Maybe they see your rings. Maybe they don't. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I don't know. Like how much of it is based on how much we both felt a need to hide in the past and to stay in the closet that basically you've developed this sort of personality that is perceived as straight straight acting as as it goes by on hookup acts apps yeah. you know right uh, right that idea of being straight acting and i don't you know i don't know like, well i mean i feel like we could get into some really deep discussions of the psychology of it because i know for me in terms of what i wear uh we went a group of us went to the fc cincinnati soccer match this past weekend which was their pride night and mm -hmm one of the, my friends suggested, you know, wearing your rainbow gear and I don't own anything rainbow and they had brought, uh, some various rainbow related, uh, temporary tattoos and everyone was putting rainbow tattoos on them. And I didn't want, I don't want a rainbow tattoo. And for me, it is an aspect of, I don't feel the need to be ashamed of being gay, but I also don't feel like the opposite of ashamed is pride. I think it's somewhere in the middle and I don't need to express that with the clothing I wear. There are plenty of other ways you can tell I'm gay. I don't need to wear a rainbow <laughs> for you to know that. <laughs> yeah, it is true. Was it Danielle and Doug who had all the rainbow stuff? Kristen. Oh, okay. I was going to say, cause like I remember Danielle and Doug, like when I first started dating Hoffa, they were like, come to the pride parade. And they like had like flags and everything. And both of us were like, I don't own any, <laughs> like, I don't own any rainbow stuff. How are like these two straight people have way more rainbow gear than oh, yeah. well, I do. <laughs> and I think that's kind of what, in some ways, what the pride, pride month and pride parades have become is equally about gay, uh, straight allies of, of, yeah. of the gay community uh, is there one time to be as equally flamboyant yeah. as uh, the gay stereotype? And dude, I generally can't stand the pride events because that's just, and I think it's, not, again, I have no problem with pride events. I think it's, you know, it's a great aspect in terms of looking at our history and that this has become something that is to be celebrated, uh, you know, identities to be celebrated, but I think for me, it's something that I, 
don't feel the need to wear my cutoff t-shirt with a, uh, you know, with a unicorn on it and my Daisy Duke shorts and, you know, run around the street. But I think it does give people the opportunity to do that and know that they're in the midst of a crowd of the same people. Right, right. Well, I kind of wonder, though, now, like, again, I'm kind of going back to what trying to bring it back to fashion a little bit, Um, because when you were talking about sort of women's fashion and and, and sort of the way that gay men designers have sort of tended to gravitate towards women's fashion. And I wondered if there is a little bit something about that that's like even related to the kind of psychology behind drag um, and that idea of. I don't know. As far as I understand it, again, like, who knows? Like, I'm sure there are smarter people with better reads on this stuff. But for me, I've always thought of drag as being this sort of way um, that gay men can kind of have permission to be sort of that flamboyant personality that they've been told not to be their whole lives. Well, and that's an interesting thing because I, I tend to agree with you because drag is really meant to be a hyperbole it is something that it's not most of the time unless you know there there has been a a more recent push in the drag community to include transgender right and historically those have been very divided things because a transgender woman is a woman is going to dress purely as a woman wear the same clothes as the women on the street the same makeup as women on the street Whereas drag queens are, you know, in in traditional historical sense, are gay men dressed as women, but in extreme fashions. They're in extreme makeup generally as well. They're going, they're they're not, they don't want to, they want to be feminine, but they're not trying to pass as women on the street. Yeah, generally. Generally. I should say, yeah, there there are sort of different sects of who are almost sort of going for a, a completely like, I want to fool you that I am a cis woman who is, you know, right. th- so that's, that's kind of, and like, those are, are things that have modified over time. Yeah. Uh, but I, th- I think you are correct. Like the just, vast majority of drag Queens are out to sort of create this almost cartoon character. Of right. Well, a and woman. someone like Trixie Mattel, who tr- literally is, tr- you know, looks become, like a Barbie. You know, yeah. yeah, is yeah. Trying to, to pull off this plastic. Yeah. Look. Yeah. So I think, that is, and I and I agree with you. I think, kind of the same idea of of gay male uh, actors. Drag is a way to embrace all those things that maybe you're toning down a little bit, mm-hmm. or maybe I mean I, I'm only recently getting into things like Drag Race. I I've never really been a fan of going to drag shows, but watching uh, the current season with Cameron Michaels, who as a drag queen goes for that more hyper feminine, mm-hmm. semi more realistic, maybe not yeah. a full, you know, idea of fooling someone, but definitely I'm more on the sensual feminine side versus the crazy outlandish, um, particularly within her makeup. But as a male is, um, you know, is muscular tattooed talks lower. Yeah. And so it, for him may be a way and I'm putting words in his mouth, but may, you know, may, may as a gay male be a way to express those feminine ideals that um, maybe he doesn't feel the need to be on an everyday basis, but this is his kind of escape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, cause like I can think of times where when I was a kid, um, I, I mean, I, 
anyone who knows me knows that I do sort of like, I love to sort of imitate people and do impressions and I sort of can easily kind of launch into these characters. And I was no different as a kid. And I remember, um, being really obsessed with, <laughs> this is like one of those things where we're talking about, like, this didn't seem gay at the time, but mm. in hindsight, I think there's a lot of things that are like that. In hindsight, this seems very, very telling, right? I have a few of those stories. So, so I was really obsessed with Jack Hay from, right. from 227 at the time was the show she was currently on. And I would like do impressions of Jack Hay. And um, I remember being sort of chastised by an uncle uh, for doing that. And like, it was one of the first times I was like, whoa, like what's going on here? Like, why, why are you not? Which, cause I think my, my immediate family was much more supportive and, and was probably more entertained by it. And, right. uh, but, uh, you know, that that was one of those times that I remember like, okay, this is not appropriate in all situations. So I have yeah. to like button up. Well, and I, and perhaps for me with fashion, I remember also with the same friend that got me into fashion design, we were both into musicals. Yeah. Surprise. Uh, <laughs> I blame my parents for that one. But we, we would hang out after school and we would put on something like Phantom of the Opera mm -hmm. and we would each pick a part. So each, you know, each time we uh, were uh, singing, I would have a designated role to sing and he would have a designated role to sing. And there, I remember at one point, I think one, I was singing the role of Christine and like wrapped a skirt around me because, of course, I'm singing a female part. I've got to be in a skirt. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think, but perhaps I think that to me was so early on that I, then as I started to figure out I was gay, I started to push those things aside as, no, that's what they're expecting me to do. Yeah. So, so I think perhaps as a teenager, when I started to realize I was gay, kind of went to the other extreme. Yeah. Like you don't want to present yeah. in that way. Yeah. Well, I was thinking we could go down into the collection and uh, into storage and uh, look at some clothes. Can we do that now? Absolutely. Awesome. Let's get going. Awesome. All right. So we are in costume storage now. Show me that gay stuff. Okay. Well... <laughs> We were talking on the way over that it's actually harder to find a straight male designer than it is to find the gay male designers. Yeah. So in storage, it's pretty easy to track down <laughs> some pieces done by gay men. So uh, where we are in storage right now is a section that is for women's dress. And it, for the 20th century, they're sorted in our storage by designers. So it makes it quite easy to find. Mm -hmm. And... One of the kind of illustrious people is Charles James, and he was known for these very structural garments. And so we have one that is so large that it just sits kind of in, on its own pedestal uh, out from everything else. And it was known, the one that we have is known as the lampshade dress. Okay. So it's a very form-fitting black dress on the top. And then at the bottom is this very large flounce that is highly structured and goes out. Oh, yeah. Uh, a couple feet on either direction, uh, kind of reminiscent of the 18th century uh, dress styles with the hips that are really mm -hmm. wide. But much uh, lower. But lower. Than, yeah, yeah. Uh, and very form-fitting on the top, so very accentuating the women's figure. And a lot of designers of that time period, the gay designers in particular, wanted to 
enhance the woman's natural physique. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. I mean, this is an image too. I'm, I'm, I, I wasn't actually until you uncovered it here. It's it's sort of covered up because I'm assuming since it can't be in the sort of closed storage areas with the the rest of them, you have to kind of keep it covered like this. Is yes, that... it's it's got a, a protective cover over it, so it protects from light whenever you've got the overhead lights on and protects from dust. Yeah, but when you, you started talking about it, I was like, I wasn't exactly sure which piece, and then I saw I was like, oh, that one, because yeah. it is one that we use a lot. I feel like in uh, when we use images from the fashion collection, it's, it's a piece that gets put out there a lot, so it was a pretty famous image to me. Yeah, it is definitely one. And we'll go down a little bit further uh, to our section of Christian Dior. And he was another one who introduced what is called the new look in 1947. And it's something that with the uh, with World War I, there were restrictions on fashion. So silhouettes changed. They became smaller to accommodate war rations. When they ended, Christian Dior introduced this fashion where it was women that had very, very tightly cinched waists and very, very full skirts. And so we have things like this navy blue uh, dress with gold polka dots. Oh, wow. And if I uh, pull it out to look at it, you, uh, it's got a fairly tight waist and then the skirt has all these gathers and pleats around it so that when you put a petticoat underneath it, it poofs out a whole bunch mm -hmm. and creates that hourglass figure that uh, math has shown is the ideal ratios. <laughs> I'm going to blame it on that. Math has shown. <laughs> it's like one of those uh, things where like people are always like dividing. It's, it probably involves the golden rectangle, right? That's yes, what I always, it is. I always it feel is. like I'm always dubious about that stuff because I'm just like, does this really mean anything where you take like, a, it's like, you know, I, I've watched like, looked at so many pictures of, I don't know, like the Parthenon with like some spiral on it. And I'm like, I don't know what any of this means. Yeah. Well, like I said, it's an excuse, but to make a, a right. woman look hyper feminine. Right. Um, and then some other stuff that we've got down this aisle are some pieces by Stephen Burroughs, who I was talking about, that is an African-American designer and a gay designer. And he was known for using this jersey knit fabric and chiffons and really light flowy fabrics that would move well on the dance floor. So this is um, a uh, jacket that goes over a dress, uh, goes over a skirt. And if I just kind of lightly oh, wave yeah. it in the wind, it moves and dances in the wind. And it was, I think for him, and this is putting words in his mouth, but I, I feel like a lot of it was both perhaps being gay, but also being a black man and embracing certain aspects of black culture and dance uh, being one of those. And he may disagree with me, but that's my interpretation. Yeah. He, he, he didn't really necessarily want us to be talking about it in this way at right. all. <laughs> so. And Stephen Burroughs is a still living designer as well. I should yeah. point that out. So oh, yeah. he so. may, you know, if he's listening to this. I was talking about this with some of the, the docents too, about probably maybe at that same workshop I keep talking about, but I was like, you know, artists can be wrong about their work too. Like, that oh, is, absolutely. You know, it's like, you don't have to, just because an artist tells you this is what this is about. Like you don't have to believe them. Right. Like, and, and I think like one example too of that, that I always use is Grant Wood when talking about American Gothic would sometimes say that it was not ironic, that it was very sincere. And then other times say that like, you know, 
oh no, it's very ironic. And and it really just seems to depend on who he was talking to of like what he told them about the painting. Yeah. Well, it makes me start to think what pieces in our collection do we have that perhaps could fit into that model of of fashion campy. Of... I mean, I'm standing here next to this thing covered in pink flowers, so I have well, no idea what that is, but... So a lot of the, what we're looking at now is the designer Bill Blast, but yeah, in looking at particularly our collection of it, there's feathers, there's pink, there's flowers sewn on, like really cheap looking flowers sewn yeah. on to a jacket, um, some roughly flounces. So... It is a bit on the campy side. There's also, I think, one of one of our best pieces from him is this snakeskin jacket that has uh, basically U.S. Navy buttons on it. It's that sailor style. And uh, the designer, Jean-Paul Gaultier, in the 90s did a lot of that same kind of stuff. And it is that, I, in some ways, is that campy play mm -hmm. on the, is the masculine sailor really all that masculine? Right, right, right. Yeah, this is the the stripe thing here. Is that yeah, the Gaultier? So, uh, well, these are both Bill Blast. So this is oh, a okay, okay. blouse. Uh, we only have one Gaultier in the collection, which oh, we can one. go look at if you would like. Yeah, sure. That's the one that was actually just on view not too long yes, ago, right? It, yeah. So it was just on view, and it's our first piece uh, by Gaultier in the collection. It is a knit dress that is printed with a female figure with a bikini on. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's almost like it literally the itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini is what it is. Yeah. And it's but it's hilarious, too, because it's it's in some ways like so silly like that. Um, I'm thinking of the aprons that have like the the like yes. bikini lady printed on them. It is right? Virtually exactly like taking that into high fashion. But then it's like he's he knows exactly how much to mess with it to like elevate it just a little bit. Like he, that's what I mean. Gautier. I, again, I'm not a fashion expert by any means, but like he's a person who always is playing with like those things that are just silly enough and then like manipulating them just enough to to kind of give them this new edge to it that brings in something different. So here he's taken that like polka dot pattern from the polka dot bikini and it's like all over it. It's kind of cutting through that design too. So it's also like messing with the idea of the like illusion of it right like it defeats it at the same right. time you know and he i mean he uses those polka dots in different colors to form positive and negative space yeah so you're kind of playing with what is the body and what isn't right because it's like is the form the sort of negative space cuts through the center of the the pr the design right like right. Uh, when we were just looking at it it looked like there's a shape kind of mi almost missing from the center of the body so it's like it's not letting that illusion like totally happen like it's 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 kind of both there and not there at the same time which is really interesting well and next to uh the gaultier pieces are pieces by rudy gernrick which we've been oh, yeah. expanding on uh our collection there and so it these i think tend to be i mean they're pretty garish in some ways but pretty subtle and are are more on the feminine side so we have we do have one that is uh, silver lame with some 
gold running through it. Yeah. This is the that one is, that like always makes me think of like lawn chairs. <laughs> it is a little bit that way. It is uh woven bands of fabric. Yeah, like just it looks so in, much like yeah, like a lawn chair, like a summery lawn chair. But, but a gay lawn chair. But well yeah. Pretty I mean, gay lawn chair. The gay, yeah, the lame, the sort of like gold and silver of it is definitely something. But again, like it's kind of in that same vein of like um uh, that we were talking about Gautier taking something kind of campy of like the the that apron or something that's printed with a body on it and then sort mm -hmm. of elevating it by just manipulating one element of it like the the fabric or something yeah well and so in this aisle I guess must be the gay aisle because across the way is Halston who actually not only was a famous gay designer but he is one of the designers that died of AIDS in the 1980s in the AIDS crisis, which was hit the fashion world really hard. And I would say his design aesthetic generally wasn't what we would think of as gay looking. It was, it was pretty um, straightforward fashions. Other designers kind of had similar uh, aesthetics but it, he had a really amazing understanding of how fabric drapes on a body. Mm -hmm. So if you know, a lot of the pieces that we're seeing uh, hung up in storage are very structured pieces, but in the boxes that have pieces that are knitwear, mm -hmm. knitwear is we store flats because it can sag over time if oh, we put yeah. it on a hanger. If I were to pull that out and put it on a mannequin, they cling to the body and drape really well. So he really understood a woman's body, even though he never experienced it himself. Yeah. <laughs> never experienced. <laughs> um, can I say that? I mean, well, I guess we don't know. I mean, maybe, uh, who knows? Like maybe he had some experiences. Perhaps, but. <laughs> Probably not his primary interest. Yeah, I, I think we can assume that he, he didn't necessarily um, have certain experiences with a woman's body, but he knew how a woman's body looked and wanted to create pieces that were very elegant. So we do have pictures on the outside of the boxes and you can kind of see things like the black dress up here that drapes around the body. And they would oftentimes literally drape around the body. So he would use the dress form and drape it around the form to create a shape. Yeah. We do have the cute piggy pajamas. <laughs> Those are also Halston? These are also Halston. I don't know the story behind these, but they're a pair of uh, pajamas that have cute little piggies on them yeah all over them that is crazy yeah that's definitely kind of the most over the top thing in here that i'm looking at probably i mean i'm not i'm only seeing the edges of things so it's it's a little hard to judge necessarily you do have i mean yeah those feathers on this one the, are pretty yeah we yeah. have some feathers we have some beading but for the most part he was a little bit more on the subtle but you know that, Side. like, just getting back to that idea of, like, you know, those designers that really, like, Gernreich, we were talking about this, that, like, really want to sort of accentuate women's forms and, like, really sort of make them beautiful. I think, you know, we're talking about that kind of friendship between straight women and gay men that's always sort of been there. And, and I think there is sort of this reverence that, you know, gay men have towards women that, like, we just really love women in this other way. That's not like not romantically, but there's also this, maybe it's like a sort of mutual, mutual understanding of like, of like not being taken seriously. Perhaps. I mean, I think that's definitely some of it. I think for me as well as I have no interest in wearing women's clothes, but I like them. Yeah. And I want to explore them. 
and this is kind of a way to um and again i i'm aesthetically minded so i want to make something look its best yeah so we've looked at a lot of women's wear i wondered if we could finish off with some menswear yeah sure sure so we're in our menswear section now we don't have a huge collection of menswear but we have some really great pieces and I wanted to start with the earlier stuff, with the 18th century, and we have some really great examples of some late 18th, early 19th century mm -hmm. men's court fashions. And we actually know that they were purchased in 1850s in France to be worn as theater costume. Oh, okay. And they were worn by, it was an actor... Uh, very famous stage actor in, in the 19th century who ended up retiring and, and living out the end of his life in Cincinnati. And when you look at these, there's two in particular that are these uh, velvets. One of them currently looks kind of orange, but mm -hmm. it actually originally, if you kind of peek under where yeah. it wasn't exposed to light, it actually used to be a bright, vivid red, kind mm -hmm. of a fire engine red color. And then is covered with silver. It has a lot of silver embroidery around the front and sides, which is part of how we know it would have likely been been f produced in France, because somewhere like England, that would have been way too much for them and, and a wee bit gay yeah. to have that much gold on you. And then another one that's uh, velvet and it has embroidered flowers uh, and lace cuffs on it. So it's something that wouldn't necessarily outright peg you as gay, but it definitely was a way a gay man with wealth could express his um, aesthetic. What par part of the 19th century are we talking about here as far as like years? So it, they would have been originally produced in the late 1790s or oh, okay. early 1800s. So early, early 19th century. Um, they've been altered a little bit, so it, um, it's a little hard to tell. Because I was just, when you were saying that, I was just thinking about later 19th century stuff, like, and, and just the way that even movements like the aesthetic movement that is kind of linked with gayness in, well, a, in and Oscar it, Wilde. Oscar Wilde is, is kind of one of the, the notable figures in that as a, yeah. as an uh, openly gay man in, in that time period. And the aesthetic movement, which had a, a wide variety of goals yeah. into it, but, it, you know, in terms of dress was widely influenced by gay men. Yeah, yeah. I want to say, and I, maybe I'm dreaming this, but I feel like, did Wild wear like a green carnation or something like a, a, I, that was dyed green? I think so. I can't quote that for sure. And that but was I like think, sort of also like a little bit of like code. <laughs> right. Well, and speaking of code, and I don't, we don't have any in the collection, but while we're standing in the, in the menswear section of storage, we can talk about the gay hanky code. Well, yeah, and that's what I was just thinking about the carnation as like a gay hanky code, like kind of predating almost that sort yeah. of idea because it's like if you cannot be open about your sexuality, you have to develop these sort of like ways of talking about it. Right, and it was a way that men in the, I can't remember if it's 60s or 70s, uh, 1960s or 70s. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think, I mean, I... I feel like people were still using it up until oh, like very recently. Yeah. I mean, and, and pro so I'm not sure uh, where it started exactly, I, I but I've even heard a lecture on it and I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, but the idea was there was a color code and you would put the uh, handkerchief in your back pocket uh, or around you. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to say even like it gets so crazy specific because even like the 
position of it, like right. in your which pocket, which sometimes I think it's like even around your arms, right. maybe, or like in different places, like all signify different interests. Yes. And so it could, I mean, it could be as simple as uh, being gay or bi. It could be, what are your sexual preferences? Right. And that right. often was the case because you couldn't go up to someone you really shouldn't still go up to someone, just ask them about their sexual preferences. But that was a way that they could codify without having other people know. And you could get basically it, the code on a little uh, card. Yeah. So you could reference that card and know what, and uh, you know, what handkerchief you wanted to use, or you could look for someone with the, the color that expressed your same interest. Yeah. It's it's one of those things that I feel like the internet has made obsolete. <laughs> like, yes. like the internet has made the hanky code pretty <laughs> unnecessary at this point. Dating apps as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And people just say it right there, and it's like you don't have to really, you don't have to use any code. It's just spelled out. So we do have a couple of fun little pieces here for, uh, for men. When you when you look at the men section, it is a lot of black and gray, and that is unfortunately just. Yeah. The way it goes for men's fashion, kind of what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, but I mean, it's so great actually just to see it right here, like the rigidity of it and yes. just like especially that like level of expression and the sort of how limited it really is. But we do have some things. So we have this lovely 1920 smoking jacket, lounge oh, jacket. Wow. That is that is something. Some purple velvet going on uh, with floral embroidery on it. And it's is something that a man would wear um in you know when he's uh after dinner with his you know group with his male buddies yeah smoking and there's a part of me that wonders if there was that kind of i think it i mean they generally were worn by straight men yeah but it perhaps because it's in the confi confines of your home parlor mm -hmm. that they could wear those flamboyant things that yeah they didn't couldn't wear otherwise here do you need me to help help Okay. <laughs> I was like, I can help you. I can hold your no, mic for a it's second. It's all good. Well, yeah. And, and I, maybe, this is something else. Like, I feel like we've run into a little bit in the museum and I'm sure you run into it maybe a little bit more. Um, and because I'm sure like working in curatorial, the idea of like facts, right? Like, and what we know, right? right. Like Absolutely. Th that's something you're kind of butting up against a lot. And so it's like there you're saying, well, I kind of wonder about this and and it becomes this really hard thing I think when you're talking about gay history because when you're talking about something that people had to hide like there's you sometimes don't have those facts because people were either hiding it themselves sometimes or having it hidden for them right you know there's plenty of instances where there are artists that expressed you know their gay desires in letters that were hidden from the public for years and stuff. And, and it's like, so we have these things being purposefully hidden. We have them, you know, by the, by artists, their families, historians as well. I mean, there are plenty of times too. It's like even that way of, to me saying, well, I don't think this matters is a way of hiding it. And, and it might not be conscious. Like you might not be doing it consciously, but Every time somebody talks about Picasso, I feel like they mention what a womanizer he was. And Picasso's sexuality is almost always brought up regularly, whether it's being connected to the paintings or not. Right. So we, we always feel it's important to talk about that. 
I don't know of a time somebody has talked to me about Frida Kahlo and not mentioned that she was married to Diego Rivera, right? Like, even though her fashion was oftentimes very queer, and she was queer, <laughs> like, yes. like we have like a a you know a person who is very openly bisexual, who is is dating women, and the fact that we choose not to talk about that, I think, is not an accident. Maybe it's the intent isn't really clearly thought out but it's this unspoken idea that it's somehow indecent to mention it, that it's sort of not polite to mention it, which basically just to me confirms this idea that our very identities are indecent. Right. That's how I feel. <laughs> well spoken in the month of pride. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so anyway, we, I keep interrupting. <laughs> <laughs> keep interrupting our little tour of fashion for like that's, bigger ideas. Sorry. Well, that but that's part of what it is. Yeah. And uh, the last couple of things I think that we can look at here is we do have a couple of very uh, flamboyant. I think is the polite way of putting yes. it. Uh, outrageous fashions with a lovely man's shirt that is a uh, bright bright yellow and is semi sheer, uh, and in all likelihood hood when it's not worn with a shirt underneath it so you right. have your skin uh revealed and then a pair of pants that have an outrageous these vibrant pants are something else what year are these from so this ensemble is from 1971 okay yeah and so it's yeah that right on that kind of the peacock revolution as it was had already ended but there was still some holdover in that and so these pants have a, a lot of bright colors a lot of patterns intermingling uh the illustration style reminds me i mean it's very you i mean your guess of 60s feels very spot on to me right off the bat because that style looks almost like um have you do you know those like early warhol drawings right. the ink blot drawings before you know he's his, the silkscreen stuff when he was actually doing commercial design and he was doing like He's drawing all those shoes and stuff. They look a lot like those early Warhol drawings, that line drawing that I do kind of associate with the 60s a little bit more. Well, and it's got various things that would be interesting to interpret, such as the tiger with playing cards. Yeah. Or the uh, rooster, in the, <laughs> the pink rooster. Yeah, yeah. That's repeated in a lot of floral prints. So, um Definitely some interesting pieces. Yeah, and as I'm as I'm saying this too, I keep going. I, I keep saying the thing about the '60s. That's another thing I always think about is how like arbitrary we make those divisions of time. Like the idea of like, you know, you said '71, right? Right. It's '71 like, is when we have it dated. For some reason, when we look backwards, we always like put this like clear line. Like, well, this is where this started and this stopped, and it's like, but that's not how we ever think about how we dress. Like, right? Right. Like, you know, when. 2010 rolled over we didn't suddenly start changing how we dress radically so though a friend of mine pointed this out and she is not a fashion historian but she was totally right is fashion now seems to actually it's it's you're right that it's still not one year you stop a style and then start mm -hmm. a completely new style but it's uh his when we talk about fashion history we often break it down by decades but now it's more of fashion from 65 to 75 75 to 85 mm -hmm. and when i started to think about that i realized it was world war ii the war ended in 1945 oh and so then that pushed all of those divisions of fashion so this 
piece from 1971 kind of fits within that realm 65 of 65 to 75 yeah 65 to 75 yeah i mean that makes sense too i mean like a lot of the things that that does make sense with a lot of the stylistic things because i've always felt like especially the early 70s and late 60s look have a lot more visually in common certainly than the early 60s and the late i mean the early 60s and late 60s i feel like look very different and a lot of media and in in even if you think music and a lot of other uh, places and the same with like the early eighties have a lot more in common with the late seventies, you know, like yeah. they're, they're, that's, that's an interesting point. I never thought about that mid mid division. That's really probably more accurate. Well, and I, I was born in the mid eighties. So I was a child in the late eighties and uh, coming into my own in the nineties, but I can easily remember wearing 80 style clothing yeah. like i definitely had the skinny jeans and the giant sweatshirt yeah and so it, you know it, it's definitely an interesting divide yeah yeah it's just one of those things where like i, I rem when you look backwards you tend to be like put things in a little like more rigid camp where when you're in the moment it's like all those things are are still kind of commingling and it's like everyone's houses too like when you go to somebody's house like a friend's house it's always interesting to tell like what year their house was built you know and like yeah. the design like when the majority of the the furniture was bought like my parents their house was built like in the 70s so everything is like avocado gold and harvest like, gold harvest gold exactly and and you know that's like it's so like it screams that very particular time period in the yeah. 70s uh, so the the last thing in the menswear that I wanted to look at is a collection of pieces, menswear pieces by John Bartlett. And John Bartlett is both a gay man and a Cincinnati native. Yeah. So he and he uh, some years ago, I think in the early 2000s, did an exhibition with us mm -hmm. and donated quite a bit of both menswear and womenswear. And so we have this great collection. And one of the uh, pieces that uh, one of the collections that we have represented was essentially kind of in way, uh, inspired by prison. Okay. And so, and there was honestly this kind of bondage-esque, not in the sense of the Tom Ford leather, right? but this binding, this controlling. Yeah. And it's, so it's kind of an interesting, he, he does play a lot on um, different interpretations, different uh, aesthetics that kind of bridged the gap between gay and straight. Yeah, I remember that exhibition too. It was really interesting because um, it was, um, and I think this was heavily influenced by him, if I remember correctly, um, but all of the male ma mannequins were lined up in the back of the exhibition right. and stacked like on three tiers. So they were all in rows like very rigid and orderly. And then the female um, mannequins were all like kind of out and more fluidly like placed through the gallery that you could kind of walk around. So he was sort of commenting on those differences of like the gender fashions and expectations in the sort of layout of the show too. Right. And so, yeah. And I, and he is someone that has done that within his designs as well. I mean, was there any, anything else you wanted to talk about or anything else we didn't talk about? Well, in terms of, one of, the, one of the people that I haven't mentioned that actually is a more recent is Johnny Versace. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We should definitely uh, talk about Versace. So uh, for anyone that doesn't remember this, Johnny Versace was a very openly gay man and was murdered in 90... Ooh. Oh, gosh, mid-90s, yeah, mid-late 90s. Yeah, I do not remember exactly. Uh, I remember it happening, yeah, happening uh, as a kid. 
so we do have one Johnny Versace piece, which is mostly in a box, but he was known for very pretty garish yeah. uh, prints, and both for uh, women's wear and men's wear. So we have a dress that's uh, kind of got a tutu skirt on it that has a lot of gold and glitz on it, uh, spaghetti straps with uh, rhinestones on it. Mm-hmm. This is something I just was keep thinking about, the idea of of taste. And maybe this is coming back to the idea of camp. But the idea of like, I kind of wonder if that's a little bit of the part of the the sort of gay designer is, is, is sort of wanting to sort of push, like, I get to say what's good taste, right? Like, right. and the idea of taste and the idea of preference are not that far from each other, right? Like, Absolutely. you know, the idea of, of being told that the thing you like is wrong or bad or unnatural or all of these things. And it's just like, well, it's just my taste, you know? And then to t and that idea of taste and the way it sort of happens in art can also be oppressive as well. Like right. the idea that like, well, this is good. This is good taste, obviously. And usually that's code for like, you know, basically you've, you have enough money, wealth, class, race, whatever, to basically put you in the know of what is good taste and what is bad taste. And so I think sometimes these designers are will willingly sort of pushing that idea of like what is good taste, you know, and challenging it by sort of like making these patterns like so big and so over the top and being like, well, I have the power now. I get to say what's good taste. And they didn't always wield it well, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> But that's what I love about it. I mean, I kind of love the idea of just like looking at something and being like, oh, that's so tasteless. I love it. Like, and, you know, you mentioned like John Waters movies earlier. Like, oh, they are. That's the whole point is, right? Yeah. It's like of of taking bad taste and sort of saying like, no, this is what I'm going to, like, I'm going to celebrate bad taste and sort of, because it's also the underlying message is like, I don't want to be like you, right? Like, I... I don't want to be like the straight world, basically. <laughs> this is the underskirt for the Versace. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Adam, so much for bringing me down here to show me all this cool stuff. It's always a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. General admission to the museum is always free and we also offer free parking. The special exhibition on view right now is Terracotta Army, Legacy of the First Emperor of China. Plus, special features include Jane Bussey, Innovations in Weaving, and Kenyachi, Painting Beauty and Death. Join us on July 1st from 3 to 4 p.m. for a gallery experience on Looking Closer. Whether you're a museum newbie or an art nerd, this tour will help you find new ways to make the most of your museum trip. For program reservations and more information, visit cincinnatiartmuseum.org. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and also join our Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalao. And hey, do you know someone who would appreciate this episode? Why not share it with them? I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum. <laughs>